Hi there, and welcome to episode 44 of the T21 Mom podcast. I'm Mary, and I'll be your host. Each episode, we'll talk about life, Down syndrome, single parenting, mamahood, and pretty much everything in between. I have a daughter named Ainsley, and she's seven years old and rocking an extra chromosome, also known as Down syndrome, and I'm living life my way. And my friend Ron and co-host is once again joining me. Hey, Mary. How is it going? We have not spoken in a while. No, we haven't. It's it's hard to say why. I mean, there's a combination of life and other things going on. You've had stuff going on as far as like, actually, you had stuff going on that was actually not doing anything. Well, we went away for a little bit. Uh, We went up to Kelowna. I drank some nice wine. We went to the kangaroo farm. We swam in the lake a few times. The weather was amazing. Saw my friend Sue. We had a great time. Did you get acquainted with a drunken goat? <laughs> yes. Uh, we went to, I think it's called Carmelis Cheese Farm, and they had some drunken goat cheese. And I've had a taste, and it's fantastic. So now we need to send everybody up there to get some cheese. It's great cheese, I tell you. It's really yummy goat cheese. And we had ice cream there. And yeah, it was a nice... It was a nice little afternoon. Cool. Um, And we're going to make an episode out of that at some point, aren't we? I sure hope so, with your expertise. Expertise and somewhat forbearance, considering how much stuff you brought back. (laughs) I'm sure you'll make it happen, Ron. Okay. We'll see what happens. So uh, what are we talking about today? Well... You know, I've been chatting with uh, Dr. Susan Fawcett, who we've had on previously for two episodes, two very different episodes. Uh, The first one was positive behavioral supports in children with Down syndrome. And also she came on again later and talked about the dual diagnosis. But she's a really big believer in mental health in our kiddos. So uh, we've been wanting to do this episode for quite a while. So and especially in light of everything that's going on with COVID, we thought it would be great to have her back on and to talk about mental health in our kids, you know, even our younger kids and all the way up to, you know, essentially adulthood. And, you know, she's, she gave a lot of great um, ideas and suggestions and we talked about different things and, you know, I've certainly seen some things in Ainsley, you know, since COVID has started and, and she assured me that I was not alone. So, that was good to hear. But yeah, really very informative episode. Okay, let's go talk to Susan. Okay. Today on the T21 Mum podcast, we have a returning guest. Dr. Susan Fawcett was on previously to talk about positive behavior supports in people with Down syndrome and also about the dual diagnosis of Down syndrome and autism in our kiddos. But today we're going to talk about something completely different. Today we're going to talk about mental health in our kids. Welcome back, Susan. Oh, thank you very much for having me back. I'm happy to be here talking about this topic. It's one of my favorites for sure. Yes, and I'm really glad that you're able to come back on, especially with everything that's been going on right now, which I think this will be really beneficial for a lot of our listeners and probably many people personally too. And um, But for those who may not have had a chance to listen to your previous episodes, but do you want to tell us a little bit about you? 
Sure. So I am the director of therapy, behavior, and family support at the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation. And I think just last week I celebrated my 17th year anniversary there. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it's honestly, I feel just as lucky to work there now as I did on day one. And I was awfully excited on day one. So I've kind Mm -hmm. of gone from, I started off as the sole uh, speech language pathologist at DSRF Mm -hmm. and um, via, you know, going to do a PhD over the last few years. Um, I've added in some expertise on behavioral and mental health supports for families of kids with Down syndrome too, because that's one thing that um, we noticed was missing. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say that I was part of your study as in one of your groups, and I found it very worthwhile. And for anyone who's having some issues, you know, dealing with beha- you know behaviors in our kids, to go and listen to that episode because there's lots of great tips, and you know, I certainly found it very beneficial and very helpful in dealing with some of the, you know, sometimes problem behaviors and things that you want to nip in the bud before they become bigger problems. So. I felt really fortunate (laughs) to be part of that study. So, you know, I know we're going to talk about like mental health and stuff, but, um, you know, for the past several months, we've all been living through this COVID pandemic and, you know, which I'm sure has affected everyone's mental health in some way. I know it has for me, but how has something like this, you know, affect or impact our kids, you know, with Down syndrome because they can't, you know, maybe tell us what's going on or you know it's a whole change in routine you know just being at home instead of going to school or their jobs or activities yeah definitely and um before I talk about the kids I will make a quick note about it affecting everyone because um I was listening to our fearless uh leader our provincial health um officer Dr. Bonnie Henry report Mm -hmm. the results of that study Mm -hmm. um that they were doing in May Mm -hmm. uh where they it was a big survey about many things but one of the things was about mental health and so the results of that survey it came out that 47 percent so close to half of the people who responded to the survey were had experienced some kind of worsening of mental health during the pandemic. And you got to know that's an underestimate because the really stressed out people aren't even filling out that survey or aware that it was even around. So, um, and, and, you know, the reasons for the, um, for the, the worsening mental health were all over the map. So things like, you know, fear of getting the virus or fear of losing your job or having to to move or worry about family members getting sick or having to care for them. Um, just general unrest and uncertainty about it was, was really problematic. Um, so, and what's really interesting to me too, I mean, definitely there's the, there's the depression piece as well. So there's often, um, some people are experiencing low mood as Mm -hmm. well, as well as, um, maybe anxiety, which is the one we might more commonly associate with this pandemic. Um, But in terms of that, there are people who are now experiencing anxiety in a real way. For some people, it's the first time they've ever really experienced it right? And mm-hmm. um, some people are just not worriers, right? So I can give you a quick example from my own personal life, which is that, you know, I'm not diagnosed with anxiety, but I definitely my personal 
personality tends to lean that way. So, you know, I am a bit of a worry wart. I definitely, you know, ruminate about things from time to time. I'm a bit high strung and my wife is not. So she's like <laughs> the exact opposite, has not got a fiber of worrying in her being. Um, and, you know, so we're a good match in that way. Yeah. But at the start of the pandemic, I saw some behavior from her, you know, being a sciencey behavior person that I saw. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. I've never seen anything like this from her before. So it was really at the start, you know, when all the grocery stores were, had a lot of empty shelves and mm -hmm. there was the whole toilet paper, you know, <laughs> crisis. Yep. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'd go in there and you'd look for something and you couldn't find it, like the flour and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so she would come home regularly during that time and stuff our freezer full of meat. And I was like, okay, that's really interesting. You know, we have a really small freezer. Maybe we don't need to keep stuffing it full of meat. But that was actually, it turned out that that kind of temporary meat hoarding tendency was actually a symptom of her anxiety and her uncertainty about the whole situation. And so that's the thing is that it, it is all of us first. Mm -hmm. um, and definitely that includes kids and adults with Down syndrome. And, you know, you mentioned, already the routines being yeah. an issue right so mm -hmm. um and if you think about that a little bit we know that kids with down syndrome don't just like to have routines they thrive within mm -hmm. them mm -hmm. right that's that's really how they learn best a lot of the time and so the pandemic not only took all of that away the school and the community and all that sort of thing um but it did it really suddenly we also know that kids with down syndrome are not great with sudden changes in things mm -hmm. so now everything is suddenly taken away and for some families at least at first for those first few weeks there was really no routine at all at home That's right. so you know I'd have sessions with kids and the little dude or dudette was still in their pajamas mm -hmm. right um in the middle of the day and so all of that taken together was quite stressful for for your kids for sure um, and, and another couple of things that probably are impacting them are, um, you know, respect to kind of the socialization piece. So we know that all of us, you know, got our, our social circles, our experiences from day to day all got shrunken, right? All mm -hmm. of those circles were very, very small for, for quite a long time. And I, you know, I would argue that that was even harder on kids with Down syndrome because a lot of them really again, thrive on social interactions, right? And mm -hmm. on being around people. And I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize because that's not necessarily true for everybody, but I think it was probably really hard on a lot of them. And then the last thing to think about with regard to the kids um, is that another potential stressor to add is the impact of parent stress on child mental health. Mm -hmm. So you know, we know that people with Down syndrome are keenly empathetic. They're kind of like sponges with the emotions of other people around them. Um, and they absorb them even more than the rest of us do. And so if you think about it, if a parent is feeling stressed, the child is going to pick up on that, right? And so mm -hmm. very often that results in problem behavior, right? And that's one of the first things that you, that parents were, were talking about at the beginning of the pandemic. And so as a parent thinking, 
thinking about how you might be exhibiting your stress or anxiety for you? Is it that you've been, you know, during the pandemic, have you been more irritable? Have you been losing your temper more easily? Mm -hmm. Um, have you had, you know, a facial expression that's not your usual facial expression, right? Mm -hmm. So that like knitted brow worried expression or like a really sad face or an angry face all the time, right? Those things are definitely things that your, that your kidlets are going to pick up on. And so those are all completely understandable reactions and definitely nothing to be, you know, ashamed of or feel bad about or guilty about. But it's why I keep emphasizing to parents that it's really important that you have some self-care, right? Yes. Um, you are taking care of yourself. You've got to prioritize it because um, we're in it for the long haul a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so that you're not presenting that stress to your child and that it's not then negatively impacting their mental health and behavior. I think those are some great advice for parents to, you know, to be thinking about and because this has been a really stressful time for people. Like I know for me and, you know, just talking to other parents, like I've st was still, I've been still working, but you know, then having to do all the schooling that was so incredibly stressful. But then there were parents who were having to work from home and have, you know, they don't have childcare. It, it was insanity at best, I think, for a lot of parents. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And so I know with like Ainsley, you know, like I've definitely have seen some behavioral issues that I wasn't really seeing before the whole pandemic. You know, there was some, I've been seeing more frequent meltdowns her meltdowns don't really last for very long, but they would just literally come out of nowhere. Like she'll just be sitting on the couch and just suddenly start crying or, you know, yelling or whatever. And then also I've noticed, um, unfortunately some periodic, tr uh, toilet training regression. I'm hoping that we're, you know, back on the upswing now, but like, that's, I guess that kind of stuff is to be expected, I guess, during this time. Well, I mean, I don't think we really know what's to be expected because, you know, it's everybody's first pandemic. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that's true. I think, you know, it's definitely important here to point out that that kind of stuff that you just said, you know, uh, all of us therapists and teachers at DSRF have heard a lot. So it is very common right now to be seeing worse behavior in kids, unexpected behavior in kids. And actually the toilet training regression is really interesting because um, I've heard that so much that I was asking the two OTs at DSRF, Hina and Ariana, about it the other day mm -hmm. um, because uh, I said, you know, have you guys been seeing this too? And they had. And so they've actually now, and, and we figure that it's because of the disrupted routines, mm -hmm. right? If you think about it, you, toileting is like a, a mini routine within mm -hmm. the larger routine of the day. Yeah. Um, and all of that is all of those larger um, you know, the breakfast and the, and the getting ready for school and all that stuff. And the going to school has all been, had all been taken away. And so where does the toileting fit now? Right. So it's this massive disruption in that. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so that's likely why most, why a lot of the kids have regressed. It's really quite a common thing. And so, but they actually, um, are going to, they've made a tip sheet now for parents and that will be posted on our website. Okay. Um, so stay tuned for that. Okay. And we can, we can definitely link to that as well for, yeah. in the show notes. So, yeah, sure. okay. Well, I'm glad to know that I'm not alone in the toileting regression because it's, it was 
kind of felt defeating and I'm going, oh man, we have worked so hard. And then, you know, it hasn't been obviously a hundred percent regression and she's certainly had a lot of her really good days, but then there's been several days in a row which were bad and you know, it's, it's hard. And yeah, I, I thought it was a lot to do with that. Just, we're just so out of our routine and out of what we know is normal right now. So I guess it just kind of makes sense that that kind of stuff is going to happen. So. Yeah. And, and think about it too, that I, I think it's probably happening more for the kids where it's a more newly acquired skill too, mm-hmm, which I think mm-hmm. for Ainsley it is right. It's just been within the last year or so that yeah. she's gotten quite good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, those are going to be the first things to go when kids are stressed out or disrupted or yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause she was, she's, and she had been starting to initiate too. It's, you know, and she's still doing it, but not all the time. And that's kind of, I think partially why we're having some regression and it's been a bit hit and miss, but you know, I, I'm glad I'm not alone. <laughs> so I'm sure that if other people are listening, they can feel that they're not alone either. Cause it's been hard, right? It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, one of the stereotypes I know that lots of us have have heard about with people with Down syndrome is that they're always happy all the time, which we know is simply not true. But very recently, especially during this challenging time, there's been a lot of talk about mental health. So what are some of the more common mental health issues that we see in people with Down syndrome, like anxiety, depression, sensory issues, or can this possibly lead to mental health issues such as OCD and you know even Alzheimer's but I think Alzheimer's sort of a different something I think that needs to be dedicated to an entire episode (laughs) yeah probably I can talk about it a little bit but yeah it, it probably does need its own episode for sure but some of those other things um like the anxiety and the depression those are certainly the most common mental health diagnoses in the typically developing population and that's also true with down syndrome okay. the thing with down syndrome is that those things are more common than they are in so you know within the typically developing population we might expect that up to 20% of people have um, a mental health diagnosis mm-hmm. and for people with down syndrome it's closer to 30%. So it's a little bit more likely. Um, And, you know, one thing to keep in mind here that people sometimes for, I think people know about, but they kind of forget about it is to keep in mind your own family history. Mm -hmm. Um, And this will keep you on the, on the alert a little bit, because just like for typically developing kids, if you, um, or one of your close family members has anxiety or depression or some other mental health diagnosis, um, your child will be more likely to get that as well, whether, you know, they have down syndrome or not kind of thing. Um, so I can talk a little bit about anxiety and depression since those are the two most common. Um, so anxiety disorders all share, um, the features of fear, which is an emotional response to a real or perceived threat. Um, and anxiety, which is an anticipation of a future threat that hasn't happened yet. So this is when we talk about worrying about things. Worrying is essentially thinking a lot about something that hasn't happened yet. Um, And surprisingly, there are 11 different types of anxiety. Um, But the most common ones in kids with Down syndrome are generalized anxiety disorders, specific Mm -hmm 
phobias. Um, so this would be being really afraid of a specific thing like spiders or needles or heights. Right. Mm -hmm. And certainly I know, like I have definitely come across a lot of kids in my, um, in, in my clinical practice so far, um, that have that kind of diagnosis for sure. Okay. Uh, and social anxiety is also, um, in the literature as being quite common. One that's not in the research literature, but I feel like we see it quite a lot at DSRF, um, is selective mutism. So this is wow. basically where kids are anxious about talking. And so, which doesn't make a, you know, it is kind of makes a lot of sense in a way, mm -hmm. because if you don't talk well, and then you're self-conscious about not people not understanding you, it might result in, you know, being a bit worried about talking in front of new people, right? So often these kids will be total chatterboxes at home, but then you, they go out to school and they talk quite a bit less and maybe in the community they might not talk at all. Right. So those are kind of some of the things that we most commonly see and some of the symptoms of anxiety. So there's kind of um, there's cognitive symptoms and then there's behavioral symptoms. So cognitively, this would be things. So this is about thinking. Right. So this is when I'm talking about ruminations or worrying, unhelpful patterns of thinking, essentially. And then behavioral or symptoms kind of fall into two different um two different things. So there's physical symptoms, like, you know, if you think about if you're very, very worried about something, you might actually get a stomach ache or a headache, or um, you might get a lot of muscle tension, right? You feel a lot of tension in your neck or your shoulders. Um, you might have difficulty sleeping or be very irritable or um, have a lot of sweat, right? That happens to a lot of people, heart palpitations. So there's physical symptoms, but there's also behavioral things that aren't exactly um, physiological. So that would be now avoidance behaviors. So say I, I don't know, I have a fear of spiders, right? And I have a phobia about them. And I see I'm sitting out on my deck and I see a giant spider. And then I might now refuse to go out on my deck for the whole rest of the summer in case there might be a spider there. That's an okay. example of avoiding a situation that might cause me a lot of anxiety. Okay. Um, so this kind of refusal to go to activities is something that definitely happens in kids with Down syndrome, right? And so anytime there is that happening, um, you just want to have it in the back of your mind. Doesn't mean that that's what it is, um, but, it, but it could be. And then another behavioral thing is that we can get a lot of problem behavior, mm -hmm. right? That results as, um, as a result of anxiety, essentially. And then um, depression is uh, a persistent low mood. Um, and this is definitely one that's been present for a while. So you were thinking on the order of months here, not kind of just, you know, um, somebody in my family passed away and now I feel sad. This is something that's been pervasive for quite a long time. And the other thing about all um, mental health diagnoses is that there has to be a piece about interference and it's interfering with your ability to, you know, um, live your life essentially. So, um, that's, that's something that people really look for when they're, when they're diagnosing it. Um, so the symptoms of depression include things like, of course, this persistent low or blue or sad mood, irritability again, um, fatigue or low energy, mm -hmm. 
uh, inactivity. So choosing to stay home from school work or other activities, you know, when we were allowed to do those things. Um, And then a loss of interest in activities that were previously enjoyed. Um, Typically developing people might experience like a sense of worthlessness or very low self-esteem. And another just couple things to point out too, is that a lot of these diagnoses are really good friends with one another. So for example, depression and anxiety like to hang out together. So it's not uncommon for somebody to have both. Um, And uh, there's another example is like attention deficit disorder and Mm -hmm. oppositional defiant disorder for kids, right? Those two also tend to go together. Um, And then I will just mention a couple of, so those ones are are fairly common. The ones I was just talking about are fairly common in kids with more teens and adults with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, but other ones that are rarely seen, which I think is also interesting to point out, is um, things like psychoses, so having visual or auditory hallucinations, mm-hmm. schizophrenia, um, and substance abuse is also very uncommon in people with Down syndrome. I'm sure parents would be relieved to hear that. So yeah, (laughs) yeah, you know, we're already dealing with lots of other things. So, you know, and I know that obviously a lot of the challenge, you know, I mean, Ainsley's only seven, but you know, and I'm I'm kind of assume. well, I don't know. Some of these things can be seen, I guess, in younger kids, not just uh, teens and young adults, but communication is always a, a bit of a challenge for a lot of our kids and you know perhaps our kids can't really adequately express how they are eternally feeling such as they're feeling anxious or they're feeling depressed so like what do parents do right so and that's a really good question because you're absolutely right um it definitely will take most kids a while to get the hang of identifying emotions in themselves and then expressing them um Some kids are natural at it, though, I Mm -hmm. will say, even within the Down syndrome uh, population of our peeps. So, Mm -hmm. um, but I would say the main thing to do here is to teach your child um, to use visuals to help them express, because we know that, of course, kids with Down syndrome are really much better with visual things. And so giving them pictures of different faces and getting them to kind of point to where they might be feeling. teaching them about the feelings early on. So we often use, I really love that, uh, the zones of regulation framework. Um, and we could maybe provide a, a link to, to that information too, okay. um, in, in your, in your notes. Um, cause it's, uh, we find at DSRF that kids with Down syndrome really get it because it's kind of this like simple color coded visual representation of emotions, mm-hmm. but then also, where your body wants to be and what you do to get back to where it wants to be. And so there's also coping strategies involved in that. So that that's what I would recommend is really teaching it early, modeling it a lot in yourself. Like I'm feeling really worried right now because, you know, and being verbally expressive about those things. Um, and then, and then also, you know, making it all visual for sure. So you've given us a, like a lot of different, I guess, things to look at, I guess. So if children or if parents are noticing like a change in their child, what are some of the first things that they should do? Like, should they be keeping a log or tracking incidents? You know, should they contact their pediatrician? Uh, 
I mean, if you can even get into one right now, like what's the best course of action? Yeah, so I like both of those ideas. I think those are both great ideas. Definitely tracking incidents for a few weeks would be helpful just so you can start to see um, what's going on and then you'll be able to speak about it better with a pediatrician or a psychologist or psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Um, and taking videos, I think, is helpful too of some of the behavioral changes that you see because sometimes they can be hard to describe to somebody who doesn't know your child very well. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, as you say, if you can find a pediatrician, contacting them and and making an appointment with them is definitely a a good idea because with all of these things, you always want to look for medical explanations first, right? right? Um, Is there some, you know, hormonal imbalance or is there some, you know, um, some medical pain issue that's going on that's causing them to behave in a very different way than they typically do? Is there thinking about things like sleep and nutrition and that sort of thing, right? Um, But also, when you do take them to the pediatrician, watch again for that um, diagnostic overshadowing. And I think we talked about this, um, I'm pretty sure in the last the last podcast, I did with you with autism, Mm -hmm. where, you know, things that you think are autism or that a a therapist maybe thinks is autism, sometimes um, physicians may say, oh, it's just Down syndrome. Yeah. Right. And that same phenomenon can happen with... with mental health concerns, maybe even more often than with autism, which just by the way, is also a mental health diagnosis. Um, but it just, we, we tend to put it in a different category. Uh, but I think, you know, parents know their kids really well. Mm -hmm. And if you know that there's something really different and that something has really changed or that you're really concerned about um, some of the behaviors you're seeing that maybe have just worsened over time or um, that sort of thing, then definitely keep pushing for uh, some investigation where that's concerned. Those are all really great tips and advice. And you know, and I actually never really thought of autism as being like a mental health issue. But yes, it makes total sense. But is there like an age, I guess, in our kids that mental health issues tend to appear? Or, you know, or I guess maybe a better question, are are there more commonly seen mental health issues seen at certain ages? Like I know you said depression, anxiety is the more common ones. But is there sort of more like an age to kind of watch out for? Yeah, definitely there is. So there are some types of mental health concerns that do emerge quite early, and then there are some that you would typically see later on. So the early ones would be things like attention deficit disorder, or or it's um, it has another subtype that's got the hyperactivity impulsivity component. So that's ADD versus ADHD. Um, autism, obviously, uh, some types of anxiety can can definitely show up really early on. So if you think about you know kids who have have separation anxiety disorder. That's when, you know, you might try to drop your little one off at a daycare and they scream and scream and scream and cling to your leg and won't let you leave, right? Those kinds of things can definitely happen early on. Um, some of the other types of anxiety tend to be kind of older kids or teens, I would say. Okay. Um, and depression is definitely not usually until, um, 
like teens or early adulthood. And there's two especially vulnerable periods there for it. So one is kind of in that early to mid teen range when self-esteem dips actually for everybody, Mm -hmm. not just kids with Down syndrome. So um, everybody is not feeling that great about themselves when they're when they're young teenagers, probably one of the reasons why they're not a lot of fun to be around, right? Because they're (laughs) moody and, you know, but they're really having a hard time mentally during that time. And so that you got to watch that with kids with Down syndrome as well, who can, you know, suffer from quite low anxiety because, or sorry, low Mm self-esteem because they tend to, um, you know, they notice, some of them notice that they are not doing as well as other people in school and they don't look the same as everybody else. And Mm -hmm. they do seem to have trouble making and maintaining friendships. And that can be really hard on, on somebody's self-esteem. So they're definitely a bit at risk for depression at that time. And the other time when they can be at risk for depression is when the, the teen is older and they leave high school and enter adulthood. And this goes right back to what we were talking about earlier with the routines, right? Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden from a, age four or five until age 19 usually is when kids with Down syndrome will exit high school. So that's a significant amount of time. Mm -hmm. That school routine all of a sudden poof disappears. And that can be really a point of stress for, Mm -hmm. for kids for sure. Um, And then another, just another interesting point and something to keep in mind is that um, with kids with Down syndrome, um, And I had noticed this clinically for a long time, or I suspected it clinically for a long time. And then I actually read about it recently in a research study. Um, But problem behavior in childhood tends to predict mental health issues later on, like in adulthood. And so kids with a lot of what we refer to as externalizing behaviors. So these are things like, you know, aggression and being really disruptive and running around everywhere. And, you know, that kind of thing, those kind of kids, kids who, you know, I had a dude when I was, um, who a long time ago, I, you know, I'm now seeing him because he's, he definitely, um, has, he's definitely depressed some of the time. Um, but he put a hole through my wall when he was, um, small, right at DSRF. So kids who are having a lot of problem behavior like that when they're younger, it tends to kind of internalize. And so, you know, then they become maybe withdrawn or anxious later on. And so that's another reason to prevent problem behavior from occurring whenever we can, or from it becoming habitual. Very interesting. So you kind of want to keep on top of it, I guess, if you're seeing some issues when your child's younger, you know, so that it can be dealt with appropriately as they get older, if they start showing those other signs. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I didn't, I didn't know that. That's actually, that's very interesting and enlightening and a little bit worrisome (laughs) too, right? But um, so what are some of the things that, um, well, you kind of talked about it, like that we could watch out for in our children with Down syndrome pertaining to the mental health? I guess like if like you're saying, if they have some more, would it be like aggressive behaviors when they're young? Or what would be something that could be that you were just talking about that might turn into something when they're older? Like, like you were, you talked about the child who punched the hole in the wall. Like I've, I was kind of shocked to hear that actually, you know, 
is it would it be is it like really aggressive behaviors or is there anything specific or just bad behavior yeah yeah i mean it's not it's not so much that it's you know all um like there's probably more at play than just that they're exhibiting um these kind of externalizing behaviors mm-hmm. but if kids are really struggling with it a lot um then that's a little bit of a red flag okay. um for me now that it might internalize later on but basically like in terms of what else parents can look for the thing that you really want to focus on is because a lot of these things like for example we haven't talked yet about um obsessive compulsive disorder mm-hmm. but that's another thing that can happen in people with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And um, they basically, uh, what that OCD stands for, obsessive compulsive disorder, which means there's both obsessions and compulsions. And the obsessions piece is the thinking piece, right? Ruminating again about, you know, did I wash my hands enough? Now, that's probably not a good example during COVID times, (laughs) because we're all washing our hands a lot. Um, And then compulsions piece is kind of that ritualistic behavior, right? That's really hard to interrupt that somebody feels compelled to do. And so in a person with Down syndrome, you wouldn't necessarily get at those obsessions because they're inside um, their brains and it's Mm -hmm. hard for them to verbalize maybe what's going on inside their brains because of expressive language constraints. but you would maybe see some of those compulsive behaviors. And so that's what you would look out for. And the same goes for depression and anxiety as well. It's going to be very hard for somebody with Down syndrome, even if they have a sense of worthlessness inside them, to actually express that. Right. I mean, to say, I feel worthless is going to be pretty much beyond the vocabulary level of most people with Down syndrome at most ages, I would think. Um, But what you would look for are things like, has there been an increase in irritability? Mm -hmm. You know, I really, this kid really, really loved going to soccer practice. And now all of a sudden they don't want to go to soccer practice anymore. Right. That if they've lost interest in things, if they've lost their, um, I had one dad who told me that he was concerned about his daughter because she had lost her spunk. Mm -hmm. Right. That Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and that it's going on for a long time. It's so it's more of the behavioral piece. Um, yeah. So, and same thing for anxiety as well, watching out for things like crying or shutting down in front of things that are fearful to that child. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Again, very good information. And you kind of sort of answered the next question about, you know, behavioral issues. Sometimes they can be masking or manifesting itself as mental health issues. And, but you you gave some excellent tips, I think, for parents to sort of be on the alert for, to watch out for, because it is going to be more challenging, I think, with our kids as opposed to a typical child, because they can't, may not be able to readily communicate that they're not feeling great or that they're anxious and then it manifests in other ways that like acting out or like you said the OCD or other things like that and you know I was also I know we talked a little bit about it before um, we started recording but you know I read something really interesting recently that uh with people with Down syndrome because they have such strong visual memories that they often have PTSD. Like, are you able to talk a little bit more about this? I I found it quite fascinating. Yeah, Yeah, it is fascinating. And it's, um, I'm glad you pointed out that piece of the interview with uh, Dr. Shacoin to me, because I hadn't remembered that piece at all. Um, But when, you know, I thought about it, and I, my, I don't know that much about it, honestly, but what it, 
what I have to say about it is that it doesn't really surprise me in mm-hmm. a way. Um, you know, we've definitely seen people with Down syndrome really hold on or cling on to people or events that have long since um, lost their relevance to the rest of us, right? right. So, okay. you know, um, they basically, it, yeah, they, they basically really keep talking about somebody who no longer, who maybe worked with them when they were a child, and they still talk about that person, even though they haven't seen them in many, 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 many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talk about them a lot, right? It's not just once in a while, they still talk about them quite frequently. Um, and I think it may be the same thing, um, that visual memory piece may also be at play in the way that people with Down syndrome grieve, because we know that they tend to grieve loss quite differently than the rest of us. So okay. when when a loss first happens, like say a you know a, a teenager with Down syndrome loses uh, an uncle, mm-hmm. right, who they're quite close to, and it may look in the beginning like they're not really. Um, too upset about it. But what ends up happening is that they, I think they process it uh, a little more slowly, the fact that the person is actually gone. And then the grief for them periods, it starts later because they need more time to process it, but it lasts much, much longer. And so the rest of the family is not, I mean, nobody's ever done grieving somebody mm-hmm. they love, but they're over the, the, you know, the acute phase of it, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and person with Down syndrome will just start becoming upset about it and it will last for a very long time. So that to me ties in with that same, Mm -hmm. um, that phenomenon as well. Very interesting. Yeah. That's, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. That's yeah. Really interesting. And especially, you know, during this whole pandemic, like it's just, it's just adding so many different layers and so many things to, to look out for and and to watch out for you know it's I mean it's just hard enough for I think the typical population to be dealing with everything that's going on and then you know we have our kids you know and some of them are young like Ainsley who's only seven but lots that are teenagers and adults and young adults that they're having to also navigate this too and you know and it's difficult for us to maybe figure out how they're navigating it. So, cause it's, like you said, none of us have been through a pandemic before. So, right. No. Yeah. No, very, um, really interesting. Yeah. And they also can't, I mean, none of us really, because it is, you know, the first time we've done this, none of us really understand what's going on because nobody really understands exactly what's going on or what's going to happen. But think about the cognitive ability of most people with Down syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. It's not it's not at the same level as us. And so their understanding is even less. And so these, you know, we can wear masks and Mm -hmm. we can rationalize why that's a good idea. And we can stay far apart from people and we can understand why that's a good idea. But explaining that to somebody with, you know, um, a cognitive delay is a lot, it makes, it makes it a lot harder on them, basically. Yes, yes, definitely. And I mean, I've tried a mask with Ainsley a few times. I Not lately. I guess I could try again. But yeah, it was like she doesn't really like things on her head or, you know, touching her face. So I don't really see how that's going to work. So I, I do see other people with their kids wearing masks that are young and I kudos to them. I, I don't know how they did it. But, you know, I know for a lot of us, it's just not going to happen. And I know that's yeah. my reality. And initially, I wasn't wearing a mask. Because I felt strange when I was out with Ainsley, you know, 
like I'm wearing a mask, but she's not. So I just chose not to wear one. But the irony is, is that I actually was wearing a mask when I actually did get COVID. I mean, I don't know how I got it. I'm sure I know I touched my face a lot. So I'm sure it was something to do with that. But I still wear my mask, you know, even today, because we all need to be respectful of each other. And, you know, we just hopefully this isn't going to be for much longer, but we don't know. So yeah, that's right. Right. One day at a time. And, you know, another um, key thing, obviously, for mental health, I think, for everybody is sleep. And, you know, and Ainsley in particular, it's like since, like, really since the pandemic has started, like, she's always been a really good sleeper, but she's waking up at weird hours of the night. And, you know, and then I've been bringing her into bed with me just so I can, you know, get some sleep. But, you know, do you think... I mean, obviously, I think that's a big part of mental health is having a- adequate health, I'm sure, right? But, you know, and Ainsley's never had a sleep study, and I keep getting a bit of a brush off. Do you think that's something that we should be doing for our kids, like, if they're having some sleep issues right now? Or do you think it's something that would maybe pass? Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought that up, because sleep definitely has an enormous impact on daytime behavior, for mm-hmm. sure, um, and mood, and anxious tendencies, right? Mm -hmm. So even think about yourself and think about the how well you don't tend to do I'm just guessing Mm because you're probably like me and everybody else. Um, The day after you've had a poor sleep, right, you probably are more irritable, you might be less patient. um, And it may actually cause you to engage in problem behavior in some situations, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's problem behavior is not just a down syndrome thing. It happens to everybody. (laughs) So, you know, it's the same for kids with um, down syndrome, except it's more pronounced because it's not just you, you know, uh, once in a while, you don't get a good sleep, it can be a constant thing, Mm -hmm. right? And so, um, and especially if it's, you know, whether it's sleep apnea or it's just general like a change in routine and that's that's brought, been brought about by covid but it's if it's an every night thing um it definitely can be a problem so definitely to uh um you know the whole thing about getting a sleep study it's always a good idea so ever it's recommended that all kids with mm-hmm. down syndrome have a sleep study by age 4 <laughs> and um to have them uh, regularly, even after that. So just because you have one at four and it's fine, doesn't mean that it will be fine at eight years old kind of thing. So, um, it's good to get regular ones as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, definitely pestering your, your doctor about that a little bit is a good idea. Okay. Yeah. And I'm going to do that just the ENT, you know, he just always asks me, does she snore, which she doesn't, but I've read in many forums that you don't necessarily have to you know if you're if your child has down syndrome they don't necessarily have to snore to have sleep apnea and and I've read several times that some kids they don't snore and they've had pretty severe sleep apnea exactly they they don't have a whole lot to do with one another oh that's interesting to know because that's always what he asks and and then he finally actually looked at her tonsils you know just recently like the last time we were there and he said, oh, they're small. And I said, oh, okay, I guess I'm assuming that means it's good. Because I do hear a lot of our kids tend to have larger tonsils and adenoids. But if he doesn't need to take them out, then we don't need to take them out. But I do really want to have a sleep study because I, yeah. you know, like for the most part, she has always been a good sleeper until now. So, you know, it's not every night, obviously, but 
it's been a lot. It's been hard, right? Because, you know, yeah. I'm not liking getting up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning. and No, I'm sure not. <laughs> go to work. Yeah, no, it's not really much fun. So, yeah, okay, that's, once again, great advice. So what are some things that parents can do to optimize their child's mental health? Like, I'm sure, like, physical activity is one, but, I mean... Like right now, Ainsley can't, we can't even go swimming. Like her swimming physio is canceled. Don't know when that's going to resume. I don't even know if any pools are open outside, outdoor pools, you know, like what can parents do, you know, during this, I mean, it's a challenging time for everyone, but especially for our kiddos, I think, but is, do you have any tips or tricks that we could maybe implement (laughs) to help us? Yeah, I have, I do have a few. Um, Definitely exercise was one of them for Mm -hmm. sure. So we Mm -hmm. know that exercise helps not only mental health, but also problem behavior in kids. It can really decrease it quite a bit um, just by getting extra exercise, um, especially quite vigorous exercise. And I totally get what you mean about there are some activities that aren't available right now. Um, One thing that I have been doing, I'm not sure if Ainsley would be into this, but one thing that I know, you know, I have been doing this a lot with my kids over telehealth. And, um, and I think some of the other therapists and teachers at DSRF have been doing it too, is we have like a dance party Mm -hmm. in the middle of our session, right? And Mm -hmm. so even that, like to help them focus. I mean, that's really why we're doing it and to ensure they're engaged and that sort of thing. But it really does help, you know, even just that three or four minutes, we pick a song and we go for it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it really does, it really does help them. And I do it with the teens and adults too. It's not just the little guys. Um, Yeah. And we're always trying to come up with like making a list of fun things that you can do in your backyard that are active, Mm -hmm. right. Or at the park that's active. And, um, you know, my, some of my guys have been pretty creative. They've come up with their own, like one, one of my dudes, um, decided that he was going to have a lot of water gun fights in his backyard. (laughs) Right. And that's a very active thing. So, you know, there's definitely still exercise you can get in your backyard, even if, I mean, it is very unfortunate that you can't go to the pool right now. Cause I know a lot of the kids love that, Mm -hmm. um, especially in the summer, but, but so yes, exercise is definitely one of them. Another one that you can really focus on right now, during this pandemic time because you are home so much is working really hard on your parent-child relationship. So lots of praise, lots of play, Mm -hmm. just fun, you know, having a good sense of humor about everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Having long play sessions where you're just following your little dude or dudette around and, you know, doing whatever they're doing, that's really, really good for kids in terms of both behavior and mental health. And you see, again, they're really tied, right? Those Mm -hmm. two things are really tied together. Um, I would say, too, um, definitely bolstering your child's self-esteem from an early age and throughout development. So we know that these are guys who tend to maybe have a little bit of low Mm self-esteem. So making sure that you pay attention to that early on and um, maybe paying a special attention during the teen years, right, when we know they're especially vulnerable to a dip in in um, self-esteem. And of course, the best way to do that is, again, my favorite 
strategy, which is praise, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. telling them when they're really good at stuff and, mm-hmm. and praising their effort for things like you try, you're trying so hard right now. And I love how hard you're working right now. Those kinds of things are really helpful. And then another thing you can do for self-esteem is we also know, and I'm, I'm pretty darn sure that you've experienced this is, you know, kids with Down syndrome like to be independent at doing things. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they especially like to be independent at things they're not ready to be independent at yet. Yeah. Right. So they, they really want to do it by myself, but they're not quite, they're not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that we're putting lots of effort into teaching skills so that they can do a lot of things by themselves and giving them lots of choice and say in what happens to them during a day, Mm -hmm. right. Giving them that will also help them build independence. Um, a couple more things is, um, emphasizing what's known as behavioral activation. So this is giving your child or teen the chance to experience pleasure and mastery in activities that they do in their daily lives. So um, this is essentially just doing things they A, enjoy, Mm -hmm. and B, are good at, right? So, and I know it's going to be easier to find things that your child enjoys than it is to find things that they're good at. But mm-hmm. there's definitely, I mean, all kids with Down syndrome are good at something, mm-hmm. right? So the ones that pop into my head immediately are reading or mm-hmm. dancing or making other people feel good, right? Mm-hmm. Like these are all things that that people with Down syndrome are typically quite good at. But of course, everybody's going to be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But those meaningful daily activities will really help combat depression, right? Um, And then the last thing I would say is, and this is a little harder during COVID times, but there's always Zoom. It's not ideal, but you know, you can do it. Um, Ensuring that your child has a peer group, right? So that they have friends who are at their level developmentally. So Mm -hmm. not just, I mean, it's fine to have some typically developing peers who are of the same age too, but also maybe mixing in some younger friends um, and also some friends who also have a developmental disability so that they have yeah. a, um, a peer group that's really meaningful that can stick with them for a while. Yeah. Okay. Those are some great tips. Like, honestly, that's like lots of things I hadn't even thought about, but I think that's, those are really awesome. And then, you know, if a person with Down syndrome is diagnosed with a mental health issue, like depression or anxiety, how is it mostly treated in our kids or I guess even in the typical population, but like, is it through medication or therapy? Cause I don't know, would therapy be as beneficial for our kids as opposed to a typical child? I, I don't, I don't know. Right. So, and that's a really good question and something people have wondered about a lot. So both medication and cognitive behavioral therapies can be really helpful. So we know that the same on the medication side, we know that the same meds work for kids with Down syndrome as kids who are typically developing. So for example, you know, we've had quite a few kids um, at DSRF who have been diagnosed with ADD or ADHD and they get put on the same the same medications that, um, typically developing kids do and they do well, it, you know, um, improves their focus, um, calms down some of the impulsivity that can happen with those kids, Mm -hmm. uh, which is really relieving for parents a lot of the time. Um, and other medications work too. So I recently have had a teen with, um, down syndrome and depression and anxiety, Mm -hmm. um, 
and Prozac has worked wonders with her. I mean, definitely we, we were using some therapeutic things too, but I think without the Prozac, it would have been a lot harder to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not always indicated to use medication and cognitive behavior therapy or CBT has not widely been used yet with people with Down syndrome and depression or anxiety, but it should, and it's becoming more common. So um, this, this is a type of therapy that's highly evidence-based. I'm sure mm-hmm. pretty much everybody has heard about it by now in some, mm-hmm. in some way. Um, and it's used as a treatment for all sorts of mental health disorders, for sure. Um, but the principles are useful for pretty much anybody. So um, just in another, a couple of examples, like they use it a lot in sports psychology, right? Oh, okay. um, I used it in the parent training program you took, right? Okay. We talked a lot <laughs> about what to do about if you're having unhelpful thoughts about right. your child's behavior, mm-hmm. right? And how to reframe those into more helpful thoughts. Um, I took I was really, I knew I had a good um, new family doctor when she, when I said I'm having trouble sleeping and instead of giving me sleeping pills, she said, you should take this online course for CBT for insomnia. And I still, you know, it was a really useful course and um, it worked really well. Um, And so what this therapy is based around is uh, something called the CBT triad, which if you imagine a triangle, Mm -hmm. it's your thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, and how they all impact one another. Okay, so, yeah. um, for example, a person might see a dog and have the thought, oh no, that dog's going to bite me. Yeah. And then they feel really afraid and they run away from the dog, right? right? Which is, and maybe that's in the opposite direction of where they were supposed to go. So that's not an adaptive behavior, mm-hmm. right? And nobody likes feeling very afraid either. Um, but if the, um, a person sees a dog and they think, oh, that dog's so cute, then they're probably going to feel happy or, you know, neutral at least. And they'll probably approach the dog or at least be able to walk by it. So some thoughts we have are helpful and some thoughts we have are very unhelpful for Mm -hmm. our feelings and behavior. And so for CBT with teens and adults with Down syndrome, we do tend to focus more on the behavioral intervention piece, Mm -hmm. um, emotion piece. But for some more verbal individuals, I've actually been really amazed at how well they are able to, after some teaching, they're able to grasp that idea of thoughts and how Mm -hmm. they might impact their behavior um, and how they're feeling. And it's really fun work from, you know, my side, the therapist side, because um, the teens and adults, you're you're not going to be surprised to hear this, have a lot of feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so far, I've found that once they learn, you know, to express them all, they really like to talk about their feelings. So um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty fun work for sure. Oh, that's wonderful. Wow, this has been so interesting and I think totally helpful. Like I learned a lot from listening to you and and of course from when I was part of your study and you know and when you've been on before, I've learned so much from you and I really hope that a lot of our listeners will really benefit from the things that you said. Would it be okay for people to contact you if they had any questions? Absolutely. And um, I'll just mention too that I do see both um, for the CBT uh, stuff, I do see both kids and adults with Down syndrome at DSRF, but also um, parents who are struggling as well um, with mental health issues, especially around parenting. And we also have, 
we're we're going to start offering Andrea, who's one of the teachers mm-hmm. at DSRF. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just about to start a group for older teens and adults with Down syndrome that's called Raise Me Up because she's been taking, of course, I have all this, you know, psychology kind of knowledge and she's been taking a course uh, for the last couple of years on sex ed and mm-hmm. teaching sex ed to people with developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so we're piloting this group together this summer um, in a few weeks actually, uh, that focuses on, you know, mental wellness and building self-esteem and healthy relationships. And like, I'm super excited to do this program. I've wanted to do it for a really long time and I'm certain we'll offer it again. And maybe we'll even, you know, depending on how things turn out with this pandemic, maybe it'll be offered over zoom or right now we're going to do a small group in person, but anyway, just things for people to look out for, for sure. Oh, that's fantastic. And I, I have talked to Andrea and we will be doing an episode probably next season, hopefully on sexual health in people with Down syndrome. So, and I'm pretty ex- excited, well, and a little scared <laughs> about that. I mean, he's only seven and a half, so I hope I have a little ways to go, but I think... Uh, yeah, you do. You, you got some time. Okay, good. <laughs> I'll get her on before then. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And that's awesome. So it's Susan at DSRF.org, correct? Okay. And we'll certainly put a, a link in our show notes so that if people have any questions, they can certainly contact you. And because you are such a wealth of information. And, you know, I talk to people a lot like online and they, I feel so fortunate that the DSRF is so close and that, that I have access to all the programs that you guys do there and, and the awesome therapists because, and we love going to the DSRF. So I can't wait till we can go more in person. Now we're just going for OT right now, but hopefully we'll pick up speech and uh, reading soon in person, but we're doing okay over zoom. So hasn't been too bad. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we're back in person soon too, for sure. Yeah. I'm sure everyone wants to get back to some kind of normal. So, wow. Well, thanks again, Susan. I really appreciate your time and your expertise and for sharing all your wisdom and knowledge on um, the T21 Mom podcast. And and, uh, I feel really fortunate that you you know, have agreed to come on and to, to partake in this. So no problem. And I thank you for the opportunity and for your awesome questions. They were great. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So if you have any questions, be sure to contact Susan at the DSRF.org. So Mary, how else can people start to deal with this, get more information, um, you know, for their kids? How can they, how can they help their kids some more? Well, Susan would be more than happy to talk with parents and we'll put in the show notes as we talked about in the episode that you can contact her at Susan at DSRF.org. And, you know, if you have any concerns or questions, I know that she'd be more than happy to assist you. She's been an awesome resource for me and, you know, she's always very open to answering questions and is great. Okay, so why don't you wrap this one up? Thanks for listening to the T21 Mum Podcast. And as always, I would love to hear from you. You can drop me a line at our email at info at t21mum.com or find me on Facebook, also at t21mum, or on Instagram and Twitter at trisomy21mama. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. That would mean a lot to us. 
And again, I would love to hear from you. Share your stories, ask questions, tell me how you're doing things your way. Keep on loving on your rocking kiddos, and we'll see you next time. See you, Mary. Bye, Ron. Bye.